Let's turn to our first uh, reading in the Old Testament, Exodus 34, 5 through 8. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed, bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go into the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin. Take, for, take us for your inheritance. Our New Testament reading is in Galatians three, ten through 14. For all who rely on the works of the law are under the, a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things, written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. For that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Join me in our summary of Scripture, reading responsibly from the Heidelberg Catechism, our Lord's Day 4. Let's begin with question 9. But does God do man an injustice by requiring His law what man is unable to do? No. God created man with the ability to keep the law, Man, however, at the instigation of the devil, in willful disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Question 10. Will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry with the sin we are born with as well as our actual sins. God will punish them by a just judgment both now and in eternity, having declared, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all these things written in the book of the law. Question 11. But isn't God also merciful? God is certainly merciful, but He is also just. His justice demands that sin committed against His supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. I'm not sure if you've heard this familiar, this familiar phrase, um, but as a rebellious and very hard-headed teenager, I heard the phrase, well, it's your world, we're just living in it. 
I heard that a lot. Typically, I heard this whenever I was given sound direction or advice um, from an adult. And instead of listening, I chose to do the exact opposite. I'm not sure really who would be surprised by that, um, knowing me um, and my attitude sometimes. But the presence of this phrase in our own vernacular, in our own kind of turn of phrases, tells us of our innate understanding as a culture of our sin-tainted nature as, uh, as children of Adam. All too often, we live our, so our lives as if we are the main character in our own story. We can bend the rules, or we can create our own rules completely because it's all about us. Even now, in our postmodern age, as relativism takes the main stage, it's all too often to hear the argument of individual or personal truth and a disdain for anything that claims universal truth or law. In many ways, our culture seeks to embody the, uh, the phrase already mentioned, except take it farther. It's my world. You're just living in it. But it's not our world. We didn't make the rules. We can't change the rules of living, uh, living well before the throne of God. We can easily forget that in a world where we can control the temperature of our house, and travel across the world in record time, that we are not, in fact, the masters of our own reality. We can't control when we die, no matter how much we try, and we cannot absolve our convicted conscience, no matter how much we tell ourselves otherwise. It's his world, and we aren't just living in it. We have a great blessing of being given life and breath by our Creator, and while the breath of life is a gift, we are not just left here, to, uh, left in the world to find out how to do it on our own devices and schemes. But instead, he has requ it's required of his creation obedience to his original covenant with the original representative, Adam. And so it turns out that this action of humanity, this action of ourselves, to try to make ourselves and view ourselves as the master of our own reality has actually set us up as rebels against the true creator and the true master of this reality. And for this rebellion and blatant disobedience in his face, there must be an answer. Because of man, man's willful rebellion against God's holy law, God will not overlook and is just in punishing man or our rebellion. This justice does not negate God's mercy, but it actually emphasizes it. My first point is not our world. Our first question this morning is kind of a retort to what's already been spoken, what's already, we've already gone through in the last two Lord's Days. Um, it's an honest question, and I, thought I'll, I think we've all had to ask it before. Is God just in requiring us to do what we can't? It may conjure up images of a parent who disciplines a child for doing something they might not be able to do. Something wild and crazy like, why can't my child drive the car or do the laundry? But it goes back to something where it shows our forgetfulness and how much we, have looked, we look at ourselves as the paradigm and not of our original creation, our original design. We were originally designed, originally created and put to fulfill the, the law of the covenant or the covenant of works. And so this image 
that we come, sometimes come up with or ask the question, is it really just of God to require of us something we can't do ourselves? It misses the entire bib- re- true biblical picture of humanity. We are created in God's image. When we look at ourselves, we often forget that our current nature um, is not the exact same as it once was. Post-fall, we have changed. Sin has destroyed, has marred the original image. Adam, as, as the first man, was given all that he was needed, that was needed to succeed and follow God's law, to be obedient to the covenant of works. And when God created man and placed him in the garden, he called him, him and this creation good, not insufficient, not lacking, but good. We must not forget that our original created state in Adam was good and acceptable before the Lord. The Lord did not make a covenant with Adam and made it so that he couldn't fulfill it. Adam's original, the original made in the image of God was that he could fulfill this covenant. And so if God could call Adam good and the covenant stood between God and man, then the only way for God and man to be on good terms was that the man Adam had the ability and did for some time do what was required of him in the law. This is why the New Te- in the New Testament, Paul speaks in Ephesians of putting on the new self in Christ. He speaks of the new of a true likeness of the image of God, holiness and righteousness, taking it back to the original design, the original righteousness, complete. But of course, this ability, this ability was lost in our correct collective rebellion in, the represent, in our represent, representative head, Adam. Although we are at one time had the freedom to obey, now we are shackled to the master of sin. Our state has changed. The original design, the image of God has been mangled. Although he, uh, he, we, or he as an Adam, has robbed himself, uh, robbed himself in all his sins of the gift of life, God himself has never changed. And so that makes us, that was from the question of, if we have changed, does that mean that God changes in his state before us? I want to kind of give you an image of what this is like. Um, imagine like the death of a loved one. You know that feeling? Everything seems to stop in your life. You're trying to collect your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, family issues that come up with the death of this family member, but life continues to pass by. Things continue to happen. Just because there's a death in your family doesn't mean the entire world stops moving on. And so, though our state has changed in our rebellion rebellion in Adam, that doesn't mean that God changes. He continues on. He is the same to yesterday, today, and forever. The rules, the law doesn't change, even though we have changed. It's not, as the, it's not that he is unjust. He has always required obedience. Even when we, are a, we were able, but, that, uh, uh, but we are the ones in danger of the injustice by accusing him, God of being, of being unchanging and faithful to his original covenant. Friends, 
while we live under the curse of sin in this life, we should in fact be thankful that, we, that while we have not kept our end of the bargain, while we have not been faithful and true to his word, and, uh, he is just in his judgment, and he is faithful and true to himself. He does not change, though we have. We and Adam willfully disobeyed. God never faulted on his word. In his justice, he is glorified. My first point, not our world. My second point, it's his world. So then in the face of humanity's willful rebellion, in the face of the disobedience that humanity flaunts, on the face of the created world, on the face of the created world, what's the answer? Will God permit all this to go unnoticed? Does God leave it unpunished? Will God? Uh, our catechism answers this with a strong and resounding, certainly not. Our Old Testament reading is that is the words of the Lord Himself. He is a faithful God. He is steadfast. He is long-suffering, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Just as we saw in our last point, it would be unjust for God to change in his standing in the covenant of works. It would not be just for him to overlook our sin and rebellion. That would be against his nature. I think if we talking about justice and judgment what's just, we tend to peddle the words justice in our society and just as humans. We use it for all sorts of causes and moral arguments, but when we respond, when we are approaching the law of God and its consequences, we are coming face to face with real, whole, and complete unilateral judgment, justice. And the perfect, unchanging judge In our sin and rebellion, we should feel this weight of glory and majesty that he is a God who is just and perfect and holy, and we are not. As our catechism says, he is terribly angry. Not just regular angry or, you know, sometimes like, I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. He is terribly angry with both the sin we are born into as well as our actual sins. Both the original sin of Adam and our present sins uh, that we have committed, there is no excuse for ourselves. He is terribly angry with both aspects of our sin. Our original sin and our present sin require a just answer. The just answer is punishment. Let me be very clear. He would not be just if he did not punish sin. Our sin in particular. After all, it's his world. And we do live in it. He made the rules, the law, and wrote it on our hearts. What other answer should be given if this just God encounters that stain and corruption of sin? just give a way of looking at this also because we can be so caught up in ourselves. We sometimes argue against these things in our own hearts. Imagine you could go home today. We finished 
You go home, you've had a good potluck meal. It's been all fun and you know, we've had enjoyed conversations. You go home and you find out that your house or your dorm or your apartment is rat infested. Would you, what would you do? To do nothing at the very least would be neglectful. And at the very worst, it would be to put yourself and those who you love and those who you care for in great danger because of that infestation in your house. It's infinitely more with our God. It isn't just that he chooses not to be in the presence of sin, but that uh, by his very nature, his nature and being like the vaporizing power of the sun, wipe out sin and depravity. He cannot be in the presence of them. By necessity of who he is, they must be destroyed. The Lord's punishment on our sin and the sins of the whole world is just. Not just, um, not just because he is the creator and maker of the law, but because it is contrary to his entire being. An infinite offense, a supreme offense as our catechism uses, uh, against an infinite being equals an infinite punishment. This is why our catechism says the punishment is both now and, in etern- and for eternity. Our sin and rebellion must be paid for. The curse must have an answer. Justice demands it. So we turn to my final point, And I think the most interesting part of this Lord's Day catechism. Justice and mercy. It's interesting that this catechism, I enjoy this Lord's Day and this catechism question because it simply already gives some common objections that we as humans give to these truths, to the doctrines of grace. And question 11 is a very common one, even in our day. How can God, be, how can God punish and be merciful? Couldn't he just look the other way? Couldn't he just erase it? How could a loving God send people to hell? How could the Lord be just and merciful? I think we've all heard that common objection and seen it somewhere. I, well, I can't believe in a God who, insert your chosen emphasis of the person who you're arguing with about what they find important in life. Yet everyone wants to use God to serve their own agenda, their social or political cause. We invoke the mercy of God when we see tragedy strike, but then we emphasize the justice of God when we perceive injustice in our world. Too often, we wrongly set justice and mercy at odds with one another. God is certainly merciful, but we should not forget You cannot have mercy without justice. He has revealed himself as a merciful and long-suffering God, yet he doesn't overlook our present rebellion. So then, where do these attributes meet? How can these two come together in harmony and unity? This last point is very important. I've kind of been building up to it. I think it's important to read this, these, this Lord's Day, this, Lord, this final 
section of the Lord's Day and just feel that weight of sin and misery and the punishment necessary. Because without it, as, I'll, as we'll see, we really miss the storyline of the Bible and make it about ourselves. This final phrase I kind of want, I'm going to kind of come back to several times. Salvation through judgment. These two, justice and mercy, meet in the acts of salvation, where justice and mercy are united in the purpose of our redemption. There's a professor at the seminary I went to, um, and he wrote an entire book on this theme. It's very repetitive, but it's a very good read if you're just trying to go into different portions of Scripture and see this theme happen. The entire book is just called, is called, fittingly, God's glory in salvation through judgment. This is, this is theme is essential to understand. How does our covenantal God, our covenantal God brings about his mighty works unto us, the children of Adam? Through the demands of justice, that the sins of, a, of supreme majesty be punished, our Lord worked and brought about the ultimate salvation of his people. Through the, dis, uh, the destruction of the world by the flood, Noah was brought out in mercy to safety and to land. Through the death of the firstborn in Egypt and the slaughter of the Passover lamb, God brought his slave people to freedom. Through the message of condemnation, God brought about uh, uh, repentance and mercy to Nineveh through Jonah. Justice and mercy do not meet in a place or in a time, but in a person. All these things and events point to our Lord Jesus Christ. In the covenantal Lord himself, who brought mercy and salvation to his covenant people, by receiving the just punishment for our sins. The just punishment which we incurred by not only our family connection to Adam and by our own sins. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, justice and mercy have reached their zenith. God is just in punishing our sin through Jesus in order that his mercy may be magnified through a salvation not by works but through grace alone. My third point, justice and mercy. This Lord's Day wraps up one of, uh, part one of the Heidelberg, uh, the Heidelberg section of misery or guilt. Our sin and rebellion followed by its necessary punishment from our covenantal Lord have clearly been laid out. It is good that our catechism is structured for us to spend three whole Lord's Days reflecting and being reminded of our necessary punishment as sinners before the Lord. We shouldn't shy away from this reality or move too quickly to deliverance. This isn't because we should wallow in our sin. It's the exact opposite. But instead, so that we would clearly and palpably feel the weight and the glory of our salvation. This weight and glory of our salvation that our God has 
bought and brought to us. Part of growing into a more full and complete understanding of who God is and who we are is knowing more and more how much we are deserving of condemnation and the just judgment for our infinite sins committed against an infinite God. And so the justice and mercy of our triune God meet in this, that the punishment we so deserved was taken by God himself, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, on our behalf. His incarnation and condescension was mercy. His ministry and life was mercy. His willing death was mercy. His resurrection was and is mercy. And his ascension, and in his ascension, he continues to minister mercy and grace to his people. Where justice reigns in the person and work of Jesus Christ, so also through this justice, we receive mercy and grace. Amen.